Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems, especially Russia's unmanned systems. Sam, welcome back to the program and hope you and yours had a terrific weekend. Uh, I hear the weather down uh, where you are is pretty good. Thank you, Vago. It actually is great. And uh, this was a very uh, interesting weekend, to say the least. Oh, my God. Uh, in, indeed. I was on a, a flight back. Uh, and so the entire night before the flight uh, was uh, watching TV uh, and was definitely trying to follow stuff uh, on the way back. You and I were exchanging texts while I was <laughs> 38,000 feet over the Atlantic coming back from Brussels. Um, let me uh, just uh, give a quick shout out to our sponsor. Before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government, HII delivering hard stuff done right. Um, so we, we've been talking since the start of this war and for many years, uh, you know, uh, what kind of hold Vladimir Putin has on power and who would contest him. Uh, you're one of the people who's always said that it might be Prigozhin. Uh, and uh, over the weekend, we, we saw just that, right? There was mounting rhetoric over the last year uh, from uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. It's clear uh, that he had Putin's support in attacking Defense Minister Shoigu and Chief of Staff Gerasimov. Uh, that was seen as a nice divide and conquer move. You know, maybe he wants to throw Shoigu and Gerasimov under the bus. Prigozhin was always careful never to criticize the president. And indeed, even in his last demarche, was very careful not to bring uh, Putin into this, rather say that the villains in this are Shoigu and Gerasimov. Uh, Prigozhin claimed uh, that it was the Russian army that attacked and killed his own men and saying that he would march on Moscow to hold those two uh, accountable. His folks took Rostov on Don. Uh, then they got to within 120 miles of, of Moscow. The roads were being torn up. Uh, Putin vowed to crush the traitors, but he's was also said to have fled to St. Petersburg. Then somehow Lukashenko got involved in all of this, negotiated an asylum, not just for Prigozhin, but his men and, and their equipment. What was all this about? Uh, was this just Maskirovka, right? Sort of a trickery maneuver, um, you know, and if so, why? Like what, what the hell happened? You know, a lot of people are asking that question. What exactly happened over the weekend? How can we understand and how can we explain it? Now that the deaths have settled somewhat and uh, a lot of people are kind of looking at uh, what actually transpired, I think this event is going to be famous for, the amount of questions that generated uh, for amount of head scratching that occurred on Sunday when Prigozhin seemingly uh, stopped his unstoppable advance on Moscow. And so I too have a lot of questions. I don't know exactly how to look at this situation in light of uh, a much sort of simpler lens of a coup or an insurrection or a rebellion, because I think those definitions really um, point to very specific actions that have to be taken by those who go up against the state and those who try to preserve state power. I think what's interesting here is whether or not Prigozhin and Wagner are actually intact and if they have, if they have maintained their positions. 
And at least for now, right, this is Monday morning, East Coast time. It's uh, close to early uh, evening in, um, in Moscow right now and across most of Russia. It looks like Prigozhin has maintained some of his uh, position and his leverage. Um, his forces have w- withdrew, but they're not dismantled. We're not seeing evidence of state kind of going after um, Wagnerites and arresting them specifically or going after some of um, Rigordon's lieutenants. What's interesting is that on Sunday, it was announced that there's no criminal case against Rigordon. This morning, actually, Russian state media is showing that, in fact, there is a case, a criminal case, Mm. um, an insurrection uh, against Rigordon, which is still pending. And so the the questions that this has generated really boils down to why wasn't the military and the security services, why weren't they able to react in any adequate fashion to stop Wagner's advancing columns? Where were the governors in all of this, right? Um, And again, some of the commentators, some of the Telegram-based commentators who were some of the most vocal, uh, basically, narrators of what was going on over the past 72 hours, you know, they even said Russian military or security services couldn't find a single tank to put up on an M4 highway as a block post, right? Nobody tried to stop this in any meaningful physical fashion. And, and that's and why- this is why, And this is why people think that the Siloviki, uh, that Alexander uh, Bortnikov and uh, Nikolai Patrushev Uh, might have been, right, were they somehow complicit or even was the army complicit, right? Right. And so, and these are adequate questions. These are actually, um, you know, one of the, one of the first questions people started asking and people continue to ask those questions. Where was Defense Minister Shoigu? Where was Gerasimov? Where were other military leaders? What about the FSB? What about Rosgvardia? And we're not talking about the few units um, that, were sent to Rostov from two directions who actually did not enter the city. Uh, They were apparently stopped by an empty field, um, according to the video footage. Uh, And so Rosgvardia, which is actually tasked with putting down internal unrest, was really nowhere to be seen. Most importantly, the leadership was nowhere to be seen in any meaningful fashion. And this generates a lot more questions and basically a lot more conjectures than is probably necessary at this point, and certainly plenty of conspiracy theories about this will find adequate breeding ground because, again, those who were supposed to step in front of Prigozhin and in front of his advance did not do so. And so even of, of this morning, for example, there's a video of Shoigu apparently doing something, um, but uh, people are pointing out that this may have been recorded on Friday before uh, the actual uprising uh, materialized. So once again, the military leadership is uh, is not seen. The security leadership wasn't there. The two generals, Suravikin and Alexeyev, who tried to talk to Prigozhin, uh, again, a lot of questions even about their actions. Um, uh, no one really tried to stop Prigozhin in any meaningful way. And again, this generates way more questions than are necessary because there's just so much we don't know about what happened. The fact that just a few thousand men were able to get this close to Moscow and no one really tried to interdict them in any meaningful fashion does not speak well for the state in general. And whether or not you think this was theatrics 
or some kind of uh, uh, sort of a rope-a-dope, some kind of a distraction, whatever. It doesn't matter. The fact that several thousand people were able to get this close to Moscow on the post raises a lot of questions, very uncomfortable questions. And this certainly shows that the Russian state is not an authoritative monolith, that there are issues in the country, issues between the government in the Kremlin and the local governments, issues between and amongst the military, issues amongst the security apparatus, because no one really gave the order from the top to stop, uh, to start acting. The Russian military and the Russian security are very vertical organizations. Someone has to give the order right. from the, at the top, and, the, and then uh, people start implementing this order uh, all the way down to the very tactical level. No one really gave that order. No military, no security, no one. And again, that raised a lot of questions. Why? Why wasn't uh, Shoigu up out there? Was there even some kind of a, um, a crisis center set up? over the weekend to deal with it? And the answer is probably no. Um, Did the military, the FSB, Rosgvardia, and other security services try to cooperate amongst themselves? Were they waiting for Putin to say something? Were they waiting for Shoigu to say something? And again, that order from the top did not come. And again, that generates a lot of uncomfortable questions right now that we don't have answers to. Well, Well, so what does this mean for Putin's hold on power? So Bortnikov is the head of the FSB. Uh, Patrushev is the head of the federal police, right? The Ros uh, Guardia that you said, uh, and uh, and then you know you have uh, Shoigu, who's the uh, army chief, and Gerasimov, who's uh, excuse me, is the defense minister, and Gerasimov, who's the uh, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? They were digging up roads outside Moscow, right? The the M4 was being dug up to keep <laughs> to keep the vehicles uh, from crossing, as if that was going to stop them, uh, right? So ultimately, what does this mean for Putin's hold on power if all of the guys controlling the state security apparatus didn't seem to be moving, or even if they were moving, the rank and file was not paying attention, was kind of giving the Wagner guys a wide berth? I think at this point, right, on Monday morning, just uh, a few hours after this officially ended, at this point, Certainly, the Russian president seems weakened, and this may have undercut his reputation with some of the people in his circle, some of the Siloviki, some of the law enforcement or the military. But in the end, we shouldn't rush the judgment that something like this can actually undermine the president. After all, as you mentioned before we started talking, a lot of people depend on the president for all kinds of um, actions, right? They, their, fortunes, their fortunes are really tied to him. So whether he is weakened or not really makes less of a, you know, less of a, a difference right now than the fact that he's still the executive, he's still the president, uh, and Wagner withdrew. Prigozhin is out of the country, at least for now. Unclear what is going to happen to him. But this threat for now has been neutralized in one form or another. And the president can always blame the inaction of the military or the security or the interior ministry and basically have a couple of scapegoats for, uh, for, for everyone, which will not include himself. Meaning, uh, again, we think he's been weakened and he may have been weakened, but how significant and to what extent is unknown right now? Because as vertical of an organization as Russia is, everything still kind of boils to the top. And we don't yet know 
what conversations took place between Putin and his subordinates over the weekend, who was ordered to do something and did something or not do something. After all, several aircraft and helicopters tried to stop Wagner's advance. They were shut down. Uh, there's a lot of questions probably in the military right now and a lot of uh, anger right. at the fact that the president announced clemency for Wagnerites as well as, um, as, well as Prigozhin himself. And even though the blood was shed and the military um, lost their pilots, including a very valuable uh, reconnaissance aircraft, apparently there'll be no consequences for those actions for Wagner. So there's now a lot of anger, resentment. There's a lot of questions, a lot of head scratching. Uh, people don't really know how to react right now, I think, um, in many, um, in many uh, of Russia's uh, circles. Again, we have to understand what is happening at the top. And at the top right now, the crisis has been resolved in one form or another. We'll have to wait for the public appearance by Shoigu and Gerasimov whenever that happens to actually ascertain whether or not they are still in power or they've been removed. But uh, no one has made the move against the president. The president is still very much in his position. Weakened, yes. His authority may have been undercut. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this does not look good for, you know, from any angle, uh, whether you're inside the country or outside the country. But we shouldn't rush the judgment that this this will negatively impact um, Russian president in the immediate. This may have long lasting and long term effect. And um, if we talk six to nine months from now, I mean, who knows whether he will be in power. But as of right now, right. this crisis appears to abate. What I think Putin really has to worry about a lot more than uh, in the inaction by his military security is the fact that in Rostov, people were not panicking when Wagner entered. People are actually happy. They were chilling with Wagnerites. They were either supportive or apathetic. They were maybe cynical of the overall uh, government action or inaction, but no one really rose against Wagner in that sense. And this continued all the way until Prigozhin's uh, order to turn around and return to bases. So I think that's probably of concern. And we have to watch how the government reacts against it's, uh, it's regional authorities, it's local authorities, whether it's going to go after certain individuals who are shown in the videos just chilling with Wagnerites and maybe who were also shown as, as whistling and deriding the police once it took control of Rostov after Wagner departed. Rostov is one of Russia's largest cities. The fact that Wagner could enter it unopposed probably speaks a lot more about what's happening uh, on the ground than any specific order that the Russian president can issue. But again, we should not rush the judgment quite yet. Right. Um, I, I should also uh, point out that uh, uh, Prigozhin uh, said that this was a stupid war entered under false pretenses that's killing a lot of people and the Ukrainians were not uh, a threat. And it's interesting that he has been you know, pardoned, uh, as it were, uh, while other people like Navalny and Karamurza and rank and file Russians have ended up going to jail over it. Uh, let me ask you, we have a couple of minutes left and I want to ask you two quick questions. One is a counteroffensive question, but the other one is, so do we know how many of the Wagnerites uh, along with Prigozhin, ended up uh, going to Belarus, and how many will be pardoned, right? I mean, Putin has said that if, if you didn't participate in the mutiny, you would be allowed to join the Russian army. It's not like Wagner is popular in the Russian army, and I can't imagine if you're a Wagner guy, you'll willfully join the Russian army, only to be beaten to death in your tent at some point, right? How many are going into Belarus? Do we know how many might end up joining the Russian army and are left behind? Yeah, there was a lot of bad blood between Wagnerites and the military before this crisis. Obviously, the situation has exacerbated this relationship. 
Uh, Wagnerites sometimes are not trusted, and obviously Wagnerites don't always trust the military. It's not clear how many Wagner people are in Belarus right now. The contingent that occupied Rostov and the contingent that um, moved up to Moscow are relatively small. We're, we're talking about, I think, some 5,000 people who were on the highway and probably several thousand people mm -hmm. in Rostov specifically. Uh, Prigozhin claimed that Wagner is uh, 25,000 strong as of uh, Friday, so it's unclear how many are with him in um, in, in Belarus. But uh, some people may actually take MOD's order of clemency because of concern for their life, because obviously not everybody in Wagner was aware what Prigozhin was doing, and probably not everybody wanted to continue along this uh, along that path. Uh, again, um, Prigozhin may have turned around precisely because his further advance into Moscow may have led to a bloodbath, a very serious bloodbath with undefined consequences. And so uh, some people may actually take MOD's order and basically hope that they can continue serving, but others may not. And the fact that Prigozhin basically rejected the MOD order that by July 1st, all uh, PMCs must basically sign in with the MOD um, is indicative of how much power he thinks he holds and how much power he probably holds. A lot of commentators are saying that he basically undertook this adventure because he wanted to demonstrate to the MOD how much he disagreed with that order. And he demonstrated his power and influence, not in some local fashion, not in Ukraine specifically, but by uh, essentially launching um, you know, a thunder run on Moscow. Let me, um, uh, we have uh, time for uh, two very quick questions. Uh, one, what use is uh, Prigozhin and Wagner to Lukashenko, right? I mean, you and I were exchanging texts and you said, look, it's kind of an exhausted force. I mean, they could barely take Bakhmut uh, at the end of the day. Is there some value for these forces being there? And do they constitute a threat to Ukraine, for example, from uh, the, the north of the country? I mean, is, is there... You know, is there like, you know, is this a chess game with two or three steps or is this a guy just saving his skin by, uh, you know, and Lukashenko helping Putin out by getting rid of the problem without any shooting? Well, it's unclear to what extent Wagner can pose a threat to uh, Ukraine from the north. Obviously, Ukraine is very aware that any um, any specific threat from Belarus can uh, can be posed. And I think they took uh, specific steps to mitigate that. It's not clear how. Um, how strong the remaining Wagner forces. It is rather exhausted. They lost a lot of people. They lost a lot of weapons and systems. What this can, however, um, sir, or, or in the way it, this can serve Lukashenko in uh, basically communicating to the opposition in Belarus that he can take, uh, you know, relatively uh, rough action against uh, such opposition, whether it's political or military. If necessary, so if uh, Wagner is stationed in Belarus as a buffer between Lukashenko and his own opposition, then that's a very powerful signal, and it kind of demonstrates that uh, this Wagner force, whether it's depleted or not, can still be a powerful element in Belarus internal affairs. If that was the plan, that is. It's interesting how Lukashenko stepped forward in front of the bullet, so to speak. He acted in a very alpha fashion. Um, he was there right. sort of offering help and assistance. Some commentators are comparing Putin's rather tepid response to Lukashenko's upfront response. 
Not that Lukashenko is any more masculine than Putin because Lukashenko is also right. old and sick. Uh, but right. it's all about perception. It's all about the optics. Right. The optics are bad in general, but the optic, uh, optics don't tell the whole story. And we don't know exactly what was communicated, what was said and promised, and what conversations and deliberations took place in, in the Kremlin proper. So Putin may weather these bad optics in general, but it's unclear if his entourage or if his uh, generals or people in the security and the political circles may actually weather this crisis the same way as he does. About 30 seconds, uh, give us an update on uh, the offensive. We're hearing reports that Ukrainians have taken about 50 square miles of territory. Ukrainians point out that, look, we haven't committed the bulk of our Western trained forces or resources at this point. Uh, where are we and how did anything change uh, since the last time we spoke last Monday? Well, uh, Tuesday, over the weekend, right. Over the weekend, there was no significant Ukrainian military breakthrough. I think a lot of Russian commentators on Telegram were really worried that Ukraine may take full advantage of Russia's internal crisis and launch a mass-scale assault. That did not happen. Ukraine continues to chip away at the Russians. Uh, Ukrainians are, are seen actually crossing some of the bridges and establishing bridgeheads. Uh, but it is a grueling fight. And um, there was no significant breakthrough over the weekend that could have um, significantly weakened the military and the Russian services in Ukraine. In fact, uh, a lot of comments were that while uh, Prigozhin was in Rostov and while this was all happening, the Russian military was still fighting and its military actions and operations were uninterrupted to a large extent to what was happening in Russia proper. Does the destruction of the Tronhar Bridge uh, change anything? Well, Russians have established a pontoon bridge right next to it, at least as the latest satellite photos showed over the weekend. It could be effective and it may impact the logistics, but it all depends whether Ukrainians would follow up the destruction of the bridge with any significant pressure on the Russian military. If that pressure does not materialize, then the, then the Russians can uh, find other ways to mitigate this um, tactical uh, disaster. Uh, and uh, some reports we hear is that the Ukrainians obviously have had some gains that have not been publicly uh, disclosed. So it's going to be interesting to watch uh, whether there's any more meaningful progress. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Margo. And a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. And we missed you in Paris. Well, it's okay, Bago. I, uh, I saved some shoe leather by staying stateside. But we're uh, looking forward to getting your insights. Uh, anyway, another great note uh, where you weigh the entire Prigozhin affair. As you know, uh, Sam Bendett and I uh, discussed uh, that at the top of the show. In between when uh, Sam and I discussed, uh, obviously, there was a, a statement by Prigozhin. Uh, but from your standpoint, what, what's the impact of all of this on defense spending as we saw some action on, on European uh, stocks, as you know? Well, and there was a follow through of the U.S. stocks on Monday too, Vago. I mean, they're off, you know, not a lot, but I mean, a couple of percentage points. You know, I was a little surprised by that because I thought, look, you know, the, the dominant narrative seemed to be like, oh, Putin's really weakened by this. And, you know, I mean, I, I think the market gets confused at times thinking that somehow... 
uh, Pergosian and Wagner Group are going to be a savior uh, for this whole mess that Russia's gotten itself into in Ukraine. Um, and I don't think that it really changes the vector of U.S. defense spending. I don't think it's going to change European defense spending. I don't think it brings the <clears throat> the prospects for the end of the war in Ukraine any closer. Um, and arguably, it, it's kind of a you know electric buzzer or shocker that you know there are a whole range of scenarios for the future of Russia. Um, including, you know, a potential descent into warlordism and, and real state fragmentation that, that I think the market just kind of brushed off here. And, and so I don't think it's not an event that I think people should look differently at defense as a result of today. Um, but as I said, I think it's just one of those buzzers that goes off that says, you know, this thing is a lot more complex and nuanced than I think anybody really appreciates. And we really don't know, you know, exactly, um, um, you know, I can take Pergosian's statement, you know, at face value that he was really just protesting the fact that Wagner Group and these other militias were going to be folded in under uh, the control of the Ministry of Defense. But I, but I don't think that people should be looking at this as somehow um, an event that signals Putin's imminent fall and replacement by a liberal democratic leader. I mean, far from it. Uh, Pergosian uh, right. certainly doesn't fit that mold. And uh, we should say, right, I mean, China remains a threat, and, and that's really the overarching bigger uh, threat in many respects, even as we, we all try to help uh, Ukraine on this. Um, yeah, but I, me... but I would say that, Vago, I mean, and I really do think, yes, um, China and Indo-Pacific, but, you know, if, if things go poorly in Russia, and you really do have instability in Eurasia, um, that has multiple, uh, multiple poles, you know, it's going to pull China potentially westward, it's certainly going to keep European defense spending, we, they may think about spending money on, on different things. But, um, you know, the idea of, of a protracted period of instability in Russia, um, you know, we're not going to do a rerun of the Russian Revolution, but certainly something that might look like China in the 1920s. Uh, that's not good for anybody's, um, you know, uh, prospects for peace. So I, I do think, you know, it's too soon to tell which way this is going, but I would not conclude that, oh, you know, war, war, you know, Putin has, has gotten a mortal blow here and he's on his way out the door and this whole Ukraine mess is going to be wrapped up with a nice blue ribbon. Right, uh, in indeed, uh, but you know, that, but I, I completely accept that. You know, the point I was trying to make though is that you know, it's it's still like there are other wolves at the door here uh, that are going to be driving right fundamental yeah, fundamental sentiment. Um, markups. Um, uh, what was your kind of takeaway on where we ended up uh, in this? Given you know, we discussed this on uh, Friday's show. Obviously, uh, House and uh, Senate. Uh, uh, authorizers as well as House uh, appropriators uh, speaking. Where where are we from from what you can gather? Well, I kind of think you know pretty much all in the same place. I mean, you know, there are obvious differences. You know, they all kind of stuck to the top line. I, I think the bigger question remains. You know, what are the rest of the non-defense appropriation bills going to look like? Because that's really, you know, as much as there is bipartisan support for both the House and Senate Armed Services Committee markups. That's been the case for a number of years now, but the rubber's gonna meet the road when we look at you know, this battle over 
non-defense spending. And, you know, the idea that there's going to be a whole large pot of money carved out for defense while non-defense discretionary spending falls uh, significantly in real terms, you know, I just don't see that happening. Um, that there's got to be some give on this. So I don't think we've, we've really, de- I mean, there's always nuances and, you know, you can look at the things that each of the committees <clears throat> favored or disfavored, um, you know, those will get washed out in conference, but as far as a, the top line numbers are concerned, um, you know, they, all, all three committees kind of stuck with the, uh, the, the, the broad uh, numbers in, in the budget deal, but, um, but the, the rest of it, that's going to come out in the conference wash. We still have to see, obviously, what Senate appropriations does, but I wouldn't expect them to deviate significantly from, from the tracks that have been laid down by the other three committees. Um, anything you want to weigh in on uh, in Paris? You were following the air show just about as closely as anybody I know uh, back stateside. Um, any, well, no, I mean, any, you know, the interesting. Insights? No, I thought the interesting thing was, you know, globalization is alive and well. Um, we talked about the the Airbus announcement in Saudi Arabia. It really wasn't part of the Paris air show, but it was it was part of uh, Modi's visit to Washington D.C. This agreement that um, that. GE is going to be building aircraft engines in India, and there'll be technology transfer along with that. You know, I think that was a significant development, given India's aspirations, and it kind of you know relates back into Russia and how weakened Russia's defense industry is going to be. Um, you know, so I, I think that was that was kind of one message for me that came out of the uh, out out of the out of the show that, um, you know, the globalization for the, at least the defense sector is still alive and well. Uh, indeed. Uh, and why don't you give the audience to look ahead uh, at the week uh, as you do a better job of that than just about anybody else I know. What should folks be paying attention to? Well, it's going to be the second day on Tuesday of the Royal United Services Institute Land Warfare Conference. Um, obviously, Ukraine is is going to be part of that, but there there have been some very interesting panels. There was one today on, for example, defense industry mobilization. Um, uh, General Milley, uh, Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, is going to be speaking uh, on Friday about uh, it's just at the National Press Club, so I think it's going to be the usual kind of very far-reaching and ranging <coughs> set of, of issues that he's going to touch upon. Um, they're interestingly. Vago, there are a number of events on kind of semiconductor technology, the U.S.-China technology competition, you know, and this isn't directly irrelevant, relevant to um, the defense sector, but it certainly is kind of the foundation on which military power is going to be built. So keeping an eye on these events at IISS, I think Atlanta Council is doing something as well as CSIS. Um, you know, they all look relevant to thinking about how defense and how national security broadly is trending and how some of these export controls and cooperation or lack of cooperation with allies, it's going to play through. Indeed. Uh, and uh, I look forward to uh, hearing uh, Chairman Milley uh, at the press club, because I think it'll be um, a great opportunity to hear from him. Byron, thanks so very much. Always a pleasure having you on and look forward to having you back on again on Monday. Have a great week in the meantime. You too, Vago. Thank you.